Dear friends, welcome to another edition of Forum 2000 Online Chats. My name is Martin L. I'm from Czech Economic Daily, Hospodářská noviny. Today we have with us James Lamon, Director of the Democratic Resilience Program at the Center for European Policy Analysis, CIPA, from Washington. Welcome, James. Hello, Martin. Thank you so much for having me today. We are now in the middle of most serious political and security crisis in Europe in the past decades, where transatlantic relations and mainly transatlantic unity play a crucial role in this crisis. James, what the, uh, are the state of the transatlantic relation, especially NATO, uh, in these days when uh, Russian aggression is uh, testing uh, unity? Is NATO stronger than a couple of months ago? Hi, Martin. Thank you so much. Uh, I think this is really going to be one of the key questions over the next couple days, weeks, months, potentially years. And this is, and we're seeing some of it play out already. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that during during the Cold War, there were there were there are a lot of political theorists who who predicted that after the Cold War, absent an external threat of of the Soviet Union, that essentially you know the the, the states of NATO and the European Union would essentially turn on each other, and uh, that obviously didn't happen. And we saw uh, expansion and growth within the transatlantic community post Cold War, um, and it started to fray over the past couple of years. But I think the question remains now: is that within with a clear increased threat, external threat that exists? what happens and i think over the past couple weeks and months during the, the during the build up to the current crisis we've seen a bit of mixed results um there was a lot of you know early on in Jan- january where there was a string of diplomatic activity there was zero daylight between uh the transatlantic community uh, nato us eu uh, uh every, every basically every country involved was on the same page we went entered the negotiations uh and and the discussions with with a strong unity And then, you know, there's a lot of concern that we saw, you know, some uh, diplomatic activity with with Chancellor Schultz flying to uh, Kiev and and uh, Moscow and and President Emmanuel Macron going doing the same thing. But I think what we've learned since is that those were clearly communicate; those were clearly very closely coordinated. Um, there is a uh, there is a much more of a, a a cohesive coordinated strategy to deal with this situation. And even just yesterday, yeah, I thought it was really. Uh, a, really demonstrated this, where immediately after Putin's uh, big speech re- uh, and, and signing of the documents rep- uh, uh, recognizing the breakaway re- uh, regions in Ukraine, almost immediately you saw a, a statement from the European Union saying that they were coming out with uh, with sanctions. Then uh, the United, then the White House uh, issued an executive order on sanctions, and then uh, the United Kingdom announced that they would be issuing uh, sanctions as well. And then just this morning, we saw the uh, the uh, German chancellor announced that Nord Stream 2 is going to be uh, uh, put on hold. And so I think I, the very fact that this was clearly coordinated, clearly uh, uh, working together, speaks to the sense that there is a, that there is a, a, a strong, that there is a strong um, coordination and strong relationship that exists. Now, how that plays out over the next couple of months, as we see, you know, sanctions going to place as we see you know real pain that could actually take place with economically uh there are a lot of implications of following activity that you know will the, will the alliance cohesion hold under under those circumstances we are recording this conversation on tuesday afternoon still waiting for the final words about the sanctions from the eu uh how do you see from the american perspective the how the europeans european leaders are doing in this uh, in this crisis, is it better than than usual or usual stuff, or are you uh, worried about the European side? 
I think I think they're engaged at a level that we had not seen uh, before. And I think you know one of the th- there's obviously been some disputes and some uh, uh, back and forth. A lot of people were dissatisfied with uh, with Germany's decision not to not to provide uh, lethal weapons. You saw statements from the um, Latvian defense minister a few weeks ago along those lines. But I think overall, what we're seeing is that sort of coordinated activity we were discussing. And I, but there there are sort of there are certain things that that make me a little bit concerned about about whether or not we have the the long term um, dedication to this strategy, right? So, for example, the, the the sanctions that we saw in 2014 that the European Union uh, issued were were, were were very good. There was this is the first time we saw uh, an economy of that size uh, sanctioned, but it wasn't the level of sanctions we saw against say Iran and and lead up to the, the the joint comprehensive plan of action negotiations to bring them to the table right it was it was much more mild they were, they were conditional they were reversible uh, it was tied to the to the diplomatic process at the time and I think what we're going to you know the, the sanctions that are being discussed for uh, the current crisis are are, mu- are much more draconian um, and I think that, that there there will be much more uh, economic pain that that is, that is felt upon all parties involved, but more more Europe than the United States, just because of the nature of the economic ties, and so how how the the the, the how, how Europe responds to that, I think, will be critical. And you know, what one thing that I would like to have seen over the past couple of weeks is a bit more communication from European political leaders to the population that they're, that laying the groundwork for this that there could, that there could be sacrifices that need to be made. And I think looking at it through a lens of what's next. You know, how does this play out in terms of politics in the region? And you, could you, you, you can imagine a sort of pro-Russian candidate in certain countries um, arising, seizing off this sort of, uh, you know, either if there is economic pain, if there is sacrifice that needs to be made. Um, you can see sort of some, you can see political leaders seizing on that in a way that could have ripple effects for alliance cohesion. If we make a little bit step back and look uh, at the situation from the broader perspective, Uh, there is long-term kind of a uh, uh, shift of, of the U.S. attention from Europe to the to the Asia, to spe- specifically to China. Uh, how do you see in this perspective uh, the the U.S. Uh, policy or U.S. Uh, contribution to the European security architecture? Is this crisis bringing uh, U.S. back to the European soil and more uh, with more, uh, let's say, energy? Or this shift uh, towards Asia will be will continue and? Europeans will have to do more on for for their own defense. Yeah, this is one of the big strategic questions that I think is is fundamental. So, the, so the Biden administration came into office, re, you know, really looking to uh, focus on China as the primary foreign policy objective. Um, this was this was clearly laid out uh, through through the through the uh, sort of perceptions of of Russia through the uh, this is this clearly laid out through the through the national security strategy and all and all the, the focus and attention that was um, at least in the early days of the Biden administration it was all about China right and I think the hope was essentially that that, that Russia was something that, that that could be managed it was something that that could really be um, that, that, that that wasn't a, a pressing issue but of course that's changed um, and now you know the, you you we got we got Pulled into this crisis, and in some ways, there's a parallel here with the Obama administration, right? Where again, uh, the Obama administration wanted to pivot to Asia, um, and then 2014 happened, and we and and we had to we had to we had, we had to act and, and adapt to the uh, the changing circumstances. And so, I think one of the key questions is how well we're able to um, to to balance those sort of competing interests uh, and figure out a way to move forward. And I think you know 
again, we can talk about this a bit more too, but you look at how Russia and China are uh, building their ties. You, you know, the, the, the statement that, 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 uh, that they released following their meeting at the, at the Olympics opening ceremony was, was really remarkable and, and really represents a new level of coordination and um, at, least, at least alignment in terms of their efforts to overcome and circumvent the, the established world order, the established uh, liberal international order and, and U.S. leadership in the world. And so I think one of the things that we need to think about as the transatlantic, transatlantic community and also just the democratic community more broadly is how can we also be thinking about um, ways to uh, uh, build that greater convergence and greater coherence to these sort of authoritarian threats? They, they are coordinating greatly why we should as well so speaking about coordination where do you see kind of the, the, more, the weakest points of uh transatlantic relations right now at this at these moments we don't have uh, donald trump but but we might have him in two years which is kind of a fear being heard here in europe but but what what else Yeah, so i mean i think the, the politics on both sides of the atlantic uh are something that will play into the the The, co the, the cohesion of the relationship. Um, and, and I think outside of the, you know, we'll see how the current crisis goes and see how the, uh, you know, as we, as we previously discussed and see how, how that plays out. But I think one of the things that no one's really thinking about in, in part because of there's some, part because there's so many uh, crises right now to deal with. But one of the things that no one's really talking about is um, climate change. And I think this is one of the key issues uh, and differences Between the, the the two communities, between between the United States and Europe, uh, in Europe, this is this is a, a crisis that needs to be dealt with. Um, it is a it is a priority. There there are uh, new rules and regulations moving forward. But the United States, you know, what, one of the major parties, one of the two, one of the two party systems, doesn't really uh, recognize climate change as a as a threat. And so, I think that's one thing that there could really be divergence within the relationship and is if is where one side recognizes it as a you know existential crisis that needs to be dealt with um, potentially above all all else and the other side doesn't recognize it as a, as a problem and so i think that's one of the key er that's one of the areas that i anticipate um more disagreement and more divergence in the in the, in the years ahead and uh, there is uh, another issue which was kind of interesting to see from both sides and which is pandemics and its impact not only on uh, life uh, as a whole, but also on the relations between people and especially in the relations between uh, nations uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. We couldn't travel. I, I myself, uh, we had a family tickets to go to United States from 2020 postponed to, to this year. So uh, how this pandemics um, has influenced, the, let's say, even the personal relations between politicians and on experts on both sides. Do, do you see it as a kind of a reparable damage? Yeah, I mean, th th I think, you know, there's there's nothing like that sort of personal touch of in-person meetings. I mean, we, you know, in, in some ways, in some ways, Zoom has enabled us to to speak more frequently, right? So we can have these sort of conversations, you know, we have this conversation right now um, and and have this sort of transatlantic dialogue. Um, we have, you know, discussions and meetings with people from all over the world uh, on a more regular basis. And so in some ways, the the the, the working from home and the, and the, and the, and the um, revolution in sort of, Uh, uh, office culture and, and technology that we've seen over the past couple, past two years uh, has has in some ways aided dialogue, but at the same time, nothing really uh, can replace that sort of personal conversation. You know, there there are big events and summits, but the key there is not necessarily um, not not just uh, 
the, the, the big meetings. It's also the, the sideline conversations that happen outside of the formal conversations. Those sort of, you know, that relationship building, that, um, that, that dialogue, that informal conversation, I think is, is really what's, what's, uh, it's really very valuable and really important. And we haven't seen that. And it's been, you know, we, we've seen, um, you know, travel start to begin again over the past six months or so, uh, with some delegations visiting, you know, more and more diplomatic meetings taking place in person, more, um, you know, uh, uh, unofficial delegations and, and sort of, uh, you know, the think tank community and the, and, and the civil society community is beginning to travel a bit. But ultimately, we, I, I think the key is that, that sort of, you know, that, that relationship building that exists. And I, and I do think it's reversible. Um, I do think, especially as interests potentially align, uh, that, there, that there could be more and more of that sort of uh, uh, dialogue happening in a meaningful way. But it, it's not—it's not a given. It might take some work. It might take some—you uh, uh, know—it'll—it'll it'll be more difficult to do. I'm asking also because you know we have seen during the pandemics uh, that the autocracies uh, you mentioned also uh, Russia and China. It looks like that they are gaining power in the geopolitical environment around the globe. Uh, and in looking from the broader picture, democracies look weaker in, in, in this point. So. Uh, what could help, uh, and let's, let's have it as a final question of our conversation, what could help democracies to become stronger in this, in the short term and in the long term? Uh, what, and what can be the contribution of transatlantic relations to that? Yeah, no, this, this is, I think this is really one of the big sort of big picture geostrategic questions that, that we need to figure out, right? And so, like, as, as we were discussing earlier, you know, Russia and China are, are, are building their ties, Um there's a big, you know, there's a big debate about how well their interests align and and how close their uh, their their collaboration truly is. But I think, you know, one of the things that is clear based on the the, the statement that came out just a couple of weeks ago from the from the Olympics is that they are seeing this as a um, they, they, in their efforts to kind of disrupt the, the the international order. They are more and more aligned and willing to work together. And I think you look at the sort of you know, no, there's a number of crises that cut across the, you know, Asia and Europe, just looking at the Ukraine crisis, right? This, there are significant implications for Taiwan and, and China. Um, and they're watching it very closely. The, the, the Taiwanese National Security Council established a Ukraine working group because of this, because of the importance to this issue. You look at the, uh, you know, China's uh, pressure campaign against uh, Lithuania and for, for recognition of uh uh, the, the the Taiwanese office in in uh, Vilnius, and you again are seeing these sort of uh, uh, trans regional issues that are taking place. And I think that so the, our, our interests are connected. Um, the the there is a there they are, we're facing common threats, whether that be cyber attacks, foreign interference in elections, uh, economic coercion. And so what we I think what democracies of the world need to do is start to build together in a more coherent way, more coherent fashion. We, we need to develop a common language and a common narrative about how we're addressing this. We need to develop a common agenda about uh, confronting authoritarianism. And you know, the, the, the Summit for Democracy in December, I think, was a really valuable kickstart to this, uh, to this effort. But I think we need to think about this in a very sustained fashion and how we are able to really put, to get, put, put together uh, meaningful coordination, meaningful... Um, collaboration and that's that, that both at the government level and also at the uh, uh individual level looking at you know the expert community the activist community journalists uh, uh elected politicians uh government officials so it, it i think it, it cuts across all the different um sort of uh, uh whole of society so to speak um 
approaches. And I think, you know, there, there's clear ways that, 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 that we can further develop that. Like, how do we respond together as a unified, uh, and to, as a unified unit um, when there are these sort of pressure campaigns, when there are these, these threats to democracies and peace and security in the world? Thank you, James. This was James Lamont, Director of the Democratic Resilience Program at the Center for European Policy Analysis from Washington. And you have seen another edition of Forum 2000 online chats. Uh, I'm Martin Al from Czech Economic Daily. Thank you and goodbye.